Good morning. Uh, just to be clear, Kevin told me I had three to five minutes, not a couple. So, I mean, I'm going to take all three to five of those. So, we'll see how it goes. Um, I'm supposed to talk about the value of recreational this morning. And, and just so we're all clear on what that is, because we all have it memorized, I wrote it down. Uh, it's intentionally setting aside space to rest and enjoy life, cease to accomplish or produce. It's a rhythm of life that submits my schedule to the values of the kingdom, practices simplicity, and acknowledges the need for Sabbath keep- keeping. This is a tough one um, because I think there's some tension in this. When I read the gospel, oftentimes I, I feel like Jesus is saying, you know, serve me by doing something. You look at Luke 10, it's the story of the Good Samaritan, and Jesus tells the teacher of the law, you need to be merciful to your neighbor through your actions. You need to take care of your neighbor through your actions. And that says to me, do something. And it, there's some tension in that because if you were to be merciful and act towards every person in Spokane who's asking for something on the street, for example, it's, it's almost impossible. And yet Jesus asked us to live into that tension. And intriguingly, right after this story, Luke talks about the story of Mary and Martha. It's just a four-verse little little story where Jesus and his disciples and probably his entourage comes into uh, Martha's house and Martha immediately starts being hospitable and serving and loving and giving and hosting and doing her thing, serving the Lord through actions. She gets a little bit bent out of shape because her sister Mary is not helping her out. She's just sitting at Jesus' feet and she's like, Jesus, tell my sister to help me out. Like there's a lot of people here and you would think, based on the Good Samaritan story, that Jesus would be like, yeah, you know, Mary, you really need to help your sister and, and serve through actions. But he says, no, she's actually doing what she should be doing. She's spending time with me. And she's spending time with me in the context of community because there's other people there. And so you got some tension there. First is the story of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus is telling us to act and be merciful through our actions. And then right after that, there's the story of Mary and Martha. And he's saying, Love me by just being with me and being in your community. And so we have to wrestle with that tension and really live into that tension. Um, and for my wife, Brittany, and I, this is really tough because we're both kind of type A personality, real task-oriented, goal-oriented. And so the action side comes pretty naturally. But the Sabbath side uh, is more challenging. And so oftentimes, because of our personalities, we pray, Lord, are we doing enough? Lord, are we doing enough? Are we serving enough? And uh, a couple weeks ago, when we had our community share time, we were praying this, and Patrick Lorden got up and he made this statement just to the community in general. He didn't know that we were praying this. He just said, you're doing enough. Like, the exact words that we were praying. You're doing enough. And it was really powerful. Um, and then later, our friend Jeremy Clark uh, came up and said, you know, I feel like God was really telling me to tell you not to forget. Don't forget. And I don't know what that means, but don't forget. And so it was extremely powerful for Brittany and I uh, to hear, you're doing enough. Don't forget. You're doing enough, don't forget. And to really kind of start to live in and pray into that value of recreational. And so since then, since then that's been a real desire of ours to live into that. And we're still not very good at it. Um, but thinking about it and praying about it and remembering like, oh, we should probably stop doing school stuff and you know, go watch the sunset on our porch. And maybe tonight we should just hang out with our friends and enjoy their presence and enjoy the gifts that God has given us and enjoy it with the community we had. Um, because we're not good at that. But that value that's stated in scripture and that value that's stated by our church uh, has been so refreshing for us that it's like, oh man, we got to start doing it more. So um, that's pretty much all I got, but 
just sharing in my process and our process for uh, learning what it means to be recreational has been um, really powerful. And so I, I'm grateful for a church that values that. Anyways. The thing I love about uh, the values is the fact that all of us have not arrived, right? We're all leaning into them, striving to become uh, more of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a part of his kingdom. Uh, it's good to uh, be here. I'm uh, grateful. I wanted to just show you a couple quick pictures of uh, where I've been this last week. Um, many of you know Caleb and Jenna Stanton. Caleb and Jenna live in Indiana. And uh, I think I have a picture of them. No, not that one. Not that one. Do you have another one? No, no Caleb and Jenna picture. Okay, just imagine for a moment, Caleb and Jenna, they've been a part of our community for a long time. They uh, are stationed now in Indiana, and they work with uh, Youth for Christ, and they do just incredible work uh, in Indiana. Well, they uh, had a really cool picture up here, multiple kids next to them, them smiling. Uh, they're, they're just doing a fabulous job there, and they wanted me to relay to you just how grateful they are uh, that you... Pray for them, that you support them, that this is their sending church, that this is a, a group of people that love and care for them. And uh, they just wanted to, to respond back and say thank you. And uh, also, it's just a, a privilege for me to be able to just sometimes when I get the chance to go out there to see them, to take them out for dinner and just to enjoy being with them. But they miss you, and they wanted to pass on uh, the word that uh, they're just grateful for you. All right. Second is uh, this picture. Okay, maybe. The ones that you had before, Shane. There we go. Okay. I don't know how well you can see that or not, but um, on Friday I flew out to go to Seattle. was in Seattle with uh, Graham and Danny Erickson. They, uh, they were a part of our community for quite a few years. Uh, Danny was a part of Whitworth uh, while she was in Spokane, and then Graham was a part of Gonzaga, and they connected, and uh, just, they're awesome. So uh, last night, we had their wedding in Seattle, and uh, just a picturesque of Cascades in the background, just this beautiful place, and um, I just was reminded in this moment of the beauty of the church. Over and over, I saw people sharing and talking about what it means to actually live in community, to know one another, to be loved by people, to be friends, to actually walk through life in a way that moves people closer to Jesus. And so I, I just had the privilege of being able to be a part of their wedding and then to fly back last night. And I'm just honored to be able to be a part of that, but honored to be a part of this community. And this morning, we're going to be talking about that very thing, Acts 2. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 2, verses uh, 42 to 47. If uh, you were here with us last week, uh, that passage might ring familiar because last week we were in Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. So yes, we're uh, doing two talks on the exact same passage. Um, that's not necessarily a rarity. Maybe it is more in today's day and age, but I don't know how many of you are familiar with Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's a great preacher from back in the day. Uh, he did a series on Acts. Thirteen messages out of this little section. So we figured two wouldn't be, it wouldn't be too bad. 
the, the focus, obviously, is about the church. It's about this uh, beautiful picture of the church. So if you would, stand with me, and uh, we're going to read this passage in Acts, Acts chapter 2. You can just uh, see it on the screen, and then I'll read aloud. It says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You may be seated. Now there is uh, a lot going on in this passage, right? Um, There are a ton of just basic elements, foundational truths to this idea of what the church is like. And Kevin touched on uh, some of the underlying motivations of what community was all about last week. And this week what I want to do is tackle a different set of underlying motivations related to why we see the beauty of the church looking the way that it did. So last week, just to remind you of where we were, uh, Kevin spoke on this passage and talked about what community is not and what community is. So first of all, what community is not, uh, he communicated that it's not a right. So it's not like when you sign up to follow Jesus that along with that comes instant belonging to this community where you feel community, right? You're instantly connected to the body of Christ. There is instant community, but not necessarily a feeling of belonging. Also, community is not the church's job. I know that's shocking. Some of you uh, wish that it was, or it might seem that it's a part of the job description, but it really, it's not the church's responsibility to bring about community. Second of all, or third of all, community is not easy. I think uh, any of us who have tried to live into this idea of being in relationship with other people understand that anytime you're in relationship, there are unmet expectations, there's a sense at times of loneliness, it requires vulnerability, all of those things don't necessarily come easy, aren't necessarily fun, uh, but are required as a part of community. And then uh, the fourth and final thing that community is not, it's not a balanced equation. What Kevin was speaking to is this idea that it's not always what you put into it is what you get out of it. So there are a lot of things in life that what you put into them, you get out of them, right? Community is one of those things that at time that's, that's true, but other times it's not true. It can actually go in several different directions. For example, you could have been a part of a new community for a week or two, and this has happened many times before, where people have said to me, I've been here for like two weeks, but I feel like I've been here forever. What are they expressing? They're expressing this idea that they instantly felt a connection. Then there's people who've been at New Community for three months, and they feel like they've got about three months' worth of community. And in six months, they'll probably feel like they have six months' worth, right? Because it's something that builds over time. And then for other people, they feel like they've just invested and invested and invested and are still waiting for the payoff. Because community works that way. But it's all of those things all at the same time and in different relationships and at different times and different speed. So those are some of the things that community is not. But what is community? Kevin touched on two things. One, it's a tangible expression of God's love. So what that means, it's a visible 
reality. Like community or this idea of community is something that we can touch, we can feel, we can see, we can taste, we can enjoy together. But it's also a discipline. So that means it takes devotion, it takes faith, it requires me to actually practice it. So those are the things that we touched on over the last week. And uh, this picture in Acts chapter 2 is one where we tend to look at the church and go, man, this is amazing. This is just like the perfect picture of what the church is supposed to look like. I mean, if you look at some of the things listed, these are what are listed in the passage. There's, first of all, this devotion to the Word of God. That the teaching of the apostles, the communication of truth, is something that the church was devoted to. It's also devoted to fellowship, relating to one another, devoted to the sacraments, devoted to prayer. And the passage goes on to say that the benefit of all of those things, the outcome, is that they witnessed miracles, they met community needs, and they saw many saved. So this, you have this grand picture of what the church is supposed to be, and you have this, uh, this author writing into this, and many of you have heard the typical church sermon on this particular passage, right? Um, I went online, in fact, and clicked on an outline, and here's the outline that I found. The first one is like two lines down, clicked on it. The church, this is the, the basic outline, the church is committed. We could all preach this message, ready? This is a message all of us could preach. You could get up here and talk about how the church is committed or that it's highly devoted, right? And you could talk about how it's continual, it met on a regular basis. Talk about how it's community or fellowship, that it's compassionate, meeting needs, it's credible, so it's faithful. And, and this is typical preacher style because it's all C's. You notice that, right? And that's, that's, that's classic homiletic study, right? Uh, but this is the church. So we get this picture like this is the church. But the question that I've been asking myself over the last few weeks is this. But, but what really is the church? What really is the church. Because sometimes I think we mean a lot of different things when we say the word church. Some of you say church, and what you mean is a particular church tradition. I met a lot of people at the wedding last night that it was like describing church. They would come up and talk about it, and what they're talking about is this tradition, this thing that's been a part of their family for a period of time, a religion, a certain denomination. So when they think church, they think that. Other people, they think a set of theological truths that we believe. So when I think church, I think, oh man, these are the things that I believe, and our faith community believes these, and so it's all about a prescribed set of theological ideals. For other people, the church is just a building that you show up to once a week. I came to church today, is how people often speak but the question is, what really is the church? Here's my premise this morning, and you might have noticed it on the back of the bulletin, but Acts 2, 42 to 47 is what I would call the beer goggles of the church, for those of you familiar with that term. It's a, a picture that we don't truly see the exact reality. We think it's something different than it really is, and we kind of miss the picture. We miss the point. We get so enamored with this idea of the perfect church, the most beautiful church, the church that is working on all cylinders, everything's perfect, it's lovely, it's like, wow, this is the best church ever in the history of the world. 
That's what we see when we look at Acts chapter 2. But what I think often gets missed when we look at Acts 2 is the truth that the church actually wasn't all that mature. The church was actually missing quite a few things. First of all, Luke is writing, and he's writing from a very generalized perspective. And also what he's doing is he's writing to an audience that is not familiar with the church. And so, he's picking the things that are valued by society at that time. And he's saying, hey, the church, it is that. The church, it is that as well. And he's creating this picture, an ideal picture, mind you, of what the church really is. And all of those things happened. They were all a part of the development of the church. But at the same time, when we think of this picture of the church, I think we sometimes miss all the other components. So let me share a few of those. For example, right before Peter started to make this speech, there were probably, in totality, around 2,500 Christians, period. Before, 3,000 were added to their number, and then more were added daily. At that point, before these sermons started being preached, before the church was perfect, the church was 2,500 people at most. Sometimes when we think of the church, we instantly think buildings, we think cathedrals. This is a church, no building. They didn't even think about gathering as one large, massive community. They gathered in home groups. They gathered in small groups. They were throughout the city. They were scattered. They were apart more than they were together. They, they met daily, but they met in little clusters. But sometimes we think, oh, they had a worship service, and it was this grand gathering. Or we uh, sometimes think that when we say that they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, that the people were like, like, every Sunday they would come and they would read through the scriptures. Listen, the New Testament was just floating around in scraps. A letter would be over here, and then a letter would be over there, and there was not what you carry around with you on a regular basis. It was not a part of their world. So you have all these things that aren't a part of their world, and and you have this church in its infancy. I came across this quote. It says, don't think, I don't think what Luke was doing here was trying to paint a picture of an ideal society. In fact, by reading Acts and the epistles, we can be quite sure that this ideal society of the church never actually happened. They certainly had their fair share of struggles and problems and had lots to work through. Acts, as we will see is full of problems amongst its people. So let me highlight just a few of those. And right now you're going, man, this picture of the church sucks. Like, what are you doing? I thought this was supposed to be a good picture of the church. So here's some of what the church was missing. So in Acts chapter 6, if you kind of fast forward a little bit, you get to this part where they said, man, we've had the apostles, but we have no leadership. We're missing key leaders within the church, and so they began to appoint leaders in Acts chapter 6. You get to Acts chapter 7, you begin to see persecution happen. They are commissioned in Acts chapter 1 to actually be a church on mission, to leave Jerusalem, to go to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Acts chapter 6, guess what? They're still in Jerusalem. Acts 7, persecution happens. Acts 8 and beyond, now they actually start to live out what they were called to do. They begin to go beyond Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth. So there were a church that was sent, but hadn't followed the mission yet. Then you have the fact that at this point, they are one 
group of people with no diversity whatsoever. No Gentiles are a part of the equation till we get to Acts chapter 10. And so Acts chapter 10, this new revelation comes and it's like, oh wait, we could include other people in this? That's pretty sweet. And so they begin to include a global community. And that begins to grow and grow and grow. But at that point in the church, it wasn't present. Then you start to see that the church moves to this idea that gifts are to be used, that everybody is a part of it. And so you begin to see in the, the epistles, the calling of the leaders is like, you should be involved, and you should be involved, and all of you actually are part of the body of Christ. You've all been given gifts. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have a gift. That gift is to be used for the community. And so these people are all, all of us are being commissioned to actually use what God has given us. But at that point, it still wasn't present. You go a little bit further and you start to see in, uh, in the epistles all of these problems within the church, right? So there, there's the lack of the use of, uh, of gifts. Then there's like the overuse of gifts or like the arguing, wanting everyone to have the same gift or my gift is way better than your gift. You, you get that idea. And uh, that was happening in Corinth. And then you had this issue that Paul starts to address with people sleeping around, and then he says, this is not supposed to be this way, and that was also happening in Corinth. And then he goes, hey, none of you are giving any money, and there's supposed to be this common giving to a community so that that can be distributed to amongst the people. And that was also happening in Corinth. So Corinth would be pretty challenging to be a part of. But you start seeing this picture that the church is missing a lot of things. So why, if the church is missing all of those things, why, if this ideal picture isn't a total picture of reality, then why were amazing things still happening? That's the question I've been wrestling with. Why were amazing things still happening? And why could we argue in some ways that the Church of America, if you look at today, might be lacking a few of those amazing things? And here's why I think it was happening is because of what the church had. It had this. It had an untamed, devoted community of people who had been met by Jesus. The church recognized that it was an untamed, devoted community of people who had been met by Jesus. As much as we talk about the church being an organization or a group of people together, The church is you. It is I. It is us. So the reason that the church exploded is because of the truth that there were a group of people that radically believed something. And I want to highlight two things in the passage. The first is this, that the church was not devoted. They, the church, were devoted. Does that make sense? It wasn't that the organization was. It's that the people were. Here's the truth. At the very beginning when Peter begins to give this speech and people in droves are coming to know Jesus, that at that moment, the Christians began to affirm that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus Dying on the cross and being resurrected had direct implications for their life. 
Here's what they believed. They believed, I know it's radical, they believed that confirming Jesus as Lord of their life meant that their lives would change forever from that point on. It's not that they added Jesus to their life. It was a replacement. It was a complete, utter change. It changed what they were devoted to. It changed how they understood their possessions. They realized that they were no longer their possessions. They were His. It changed the entirety of their life. So, this passage highlights a few of those ways. It says that they sold all their stuff. They gave it to the poor. They took care of those in need. They worshiped together. They prayed together. And all of those things, they would say, is what it meant to be Christian. Another way to put it is, that was the expectation. It wasn't the expectation in, uh, hey, you're a Christian now, so let me twist your arm and convince you that these are the things that you're supposed to do. It was with absolute certainty that they believed that the implication of following Jesus, making Him Lord, radically changed the way they looked at everything. And so when it says that the church was devoted to these things, what's interesting is that it isn't just the organization. Again, when we we ask the question, what is the church devoted to? So often, my mind, maybe not yours, but my mind races to, Man, is the church as an organization, is it devoted to teaching the Word? Is it devoted to gathering together in groups? Great question. All of us should be, and I believe, are a part of a community that is about those things. But the better question is this. Are you devoted? That's the real question. Are you devoted to these things? Because it's not about whether the church that you show up to on a Sunday, is devoted to it. It's about whether we, the church, are devoted to it. So the scripture says, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The question for us this morning is, the word of Christ dwelling in you richly? Are you devoted to the word? Is it a part of your everyday life? Do you actually seek to live it out and follow its teachings? Are you devoted to this idea of community that Kevin talked about last week. Committing your life to the lives of others. Are you devoted to generosity with your resources? Giving to the body of Christ, meeting needs within the community. Do you continually call on the name of the Lord in prayer? It's another thing that the passage says they were devoted to. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say this. That the reason... We are enamored with Acts 2. And the reason that we often compare Acts 2 to our church or to the Church of America is because we see something unique and dynamic happening. And it isn't because of an organization. It isn't because of some structure. It's because the people were actually radically devoted to the idea that when they follow Jesus, everything changes. Everything changes. The expectations change. I had a conversation last night, and this is... uh, maybe the joy and the burden of being the, the speaker. So I spoke, I get done, and, um, it, I, and then it's like I might as well open up a confessional booth, right? 
I, I, don't, I don't know why it works that way. You know, so some people are like, hey, that was, hey thanks for doing that. And then, and then other people are like, hey, free pastor right here. I'm just going like, to start confessing stuff. And so I remember having this conversation with a lady, and she comes up and she starts to share, and she's um, talking about the church. And uh, I'm like, well, where do you go? Well, I mean, like, when I go, I go here. And, oh, great. And what, what, uh, what do you enjoy about your, uh, your church or the community that you're a part of? Well, yeah, it was like him and Han, and then basically said to me this. I think faith is good, but like I think you can also like go too far with it. Like, I want some, but I don't want all. I want to be like, I kind of want to dabble in faith, but I don't want to be devoted to faith. I want to be a part of the church, but I don't really like want to be all in. I don't want to like jump in. I kind of indicated through my conversation that, that was kind of the requirement, actually. And, and I think sh- shortly after that, I was like, I think I need more wine. And she, she like, took off, right? Because that's, that's sometimes what happens. We start to recognize there's a big difference between dabbling in the church and being devoted to the church. Right? I mean, imagine if I, if I got up last night and I started to talk about this idea of, of being a part of the church, and I, I just said, hey... Um, your marriage, it's great. Just dabble in it. Dabble in it. Enjoy one another. If it ever gets kind of annoying, if it ever requires too much of you, you know, stop. Because it's just, you know, marriage. You'd be going like, what? Are you kidding me? No. What do we say? You're devoted to one another. There's this commitment. There's this sense that when I make this vow, all this comes with it. And I gladly engage in all of this because I've given my life to you. Whether you know it or not, when you said, I do to Jesus, same package deal. It's an all. It's a devoted, it's a commitment, it's a following. So there was this idea of an expectation. Here's the second and final point. They didn't just go to church. They needed the church. They didn't just go to church. They needed the church. What I want you to do for just a moment, I'm going to put up a quote, and I want you to discuss it with your neighbor. All right? it can be, you can approach it from uh, several angles. You can just agree with it, disagree with it. But when you talk with your neighbor about it, tell them why. Here's the quote, and I agree with it, and here's why. Or I disagree with it, and here's why. Ready? Give you about a minute to discuss it with your neighbor. Here's the quote. It's coming. (laughs) Dramatic pause. Uh, You cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. Cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. Agree or disagree, talk with your neighbor, give you about a minute, and then uh, we'll come back up. Okay? Go. Okay, how many of you are like, yes and no? Uh, A lot of us are like, yeah, I can kind of agree, and then I kind of disagree a little bit. In some ways, it's a bit of a trick question, right? It's um, interesting. 
I think in Christianity, we've wrongly viewed our faith as a private matter. Okay? Christianity is definitely personal. Never private. Definitely personal. Never intended to ever be private. That's Christianity. That's faith. Right? Came across this quote, Life in community is no less than a necessity for us. It is an inescapable must. And it determines everything we do and think. We must live in community because all life created by God exists in a communal order and works toward community. See, many of us think that our view of the corporate church is this idea that I can personally accept Jesus and then decide later if I want to be a part of the body of Christ. Or I can personally accept Jesus and then like, yeah, sometimes I can be a part of this and then sometimes I cannot be a part of it. Here's why it's a trick question. Okay? Theologically speaking, not just practically, but theologically speaking, uh, 1 Corinthians 12.13 would be a perfect example. For in one spirit, we were all baptized. Period. Not period. <laughs> Into one body. Why did I pause? Because that's what I think most of us say. We were all baptized into one spirit. Boom, done. Got it. Me and God, fine. I've got this relationship with God, no, no problems. I'm in, well, I'm in what? I'm actually in the body of Christ. It's one and the same. It happens at the same time. You have no options. So can you be, can you have God as your father and not as your mother? Uh-uh, can't. The church has to be a part of the equation because when you were engrafted into the family of God, the body of Christ, you instantly became one with God, but one with us. You can't opt out. The only way you opt out is if like, you're not a part of the family. That's the way it works. It's a package deal. You can't take one and not have the other. But I think we've grown in our society to believe that I can have one and not the other. I can believe that I can just leave it when I want to and not be a part of it, and it will have no impact on my life. In fact, I think there's a growing wave of people, not just in our country, but around the world, that go, hey, I can have this vertical thing with God, and I can actually distance myself from people. I can actually distance myself from the church. You can't. It's what I used to tell my son over and over. We used to talk about this idea, right, that the church is the people. It's not the steeple, it's the people, right? So we talk about that, we would interact about it. Um, and I remember one day... This was, uh, he was probably like seven or eight. He wakes up, it's a Sunday, and he's like, Dad, I'm just really tired. I don't feel like going to the church. And I go, oh my goodness, we've got a problem. And he thought I was going to say, like, the problem is you need to get up out of bed. We're going to church. No. He said, the problem is you're stuck. He goes, what do you mean? I go, I don't care if you stay. That's fine. But the church is still here because you're in it, right? If you've committed to follow Jesus, you're in it. You can't step in it and step out of it. You're a part of it. In fact, Acts chapter 2, and this is part of why I think the church actually grows, the word fellowship means that they are actually like 
we're together in it, doing stuff, participating in is the technical term. This idea that they were actually engaged in it. See, I think they didn't just go to church, they actually needed the church. And I don't mean it needed just in the theological sense. So I'm going to take it out of the theological abstract, this idea that you are the church, you can't get out of it, sorry. You're in, we're family. But I also mean on a personal level. I think one of the reasons that the church is not around the world flourishing the way that God intended is because we actually think that we're better off living independent from one another. Our society has created this individualism that that is almost instilled in us from the very beginning. I think King Solomon speaks to it the best when he says this. In Ecclesiastes 4, he says, Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Then he says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall... One will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. That's why I think Genesis echoes this idea, it's not good for man to be alone. What's interesting is he said that when it was God and man and it was perfect. And then he said, but not having community, not having others, not being in a body, not good. And so he created us to function as a body. I'm realizing that the further I go in my faith, the more dependent I am on you. I used to think growing up that I would become less dependent, right? That I would would know more of the scriptures, I would have a greater understanding of how to live, that I would actually grow in maturity, that I would maybe hopefully sin less, that I would um, understand grace more, that I would live in all of those things more. And I thought, man, I mean, you probably grow to this point where you go, wow, like things are happening now. This is great because God is moving in me in this way. And what I'm realizing more and more and more is that when I grow, it's forcing me toward people, not away. I had a good friend in college who wrote this several years back, and I'm just going to read little parts of what he wrote, uh, kind of in conclusion. He said this, <clears throat> I just learned a fearful thing. I don't live in community. There isn't a friend I know that I can't live without other than my wife. It sounds spiritual, but it's not. I've grown to not need anyone. It saddens my heart that I spend so much time with people and so little time in people. It's not the lack of contact. It's the lack of connection. Loneliness isn't being alone. It's being with people and not finding a fit. It's talking and not being heard. It's listening and not remembering. And the worst thing is this. I'm getting used to it. I'm bound. Listen to that. I'm bound to my need for others. Denial only prolongs the agony. I can't live without deep friendship. I can't grow without true fellowship. I can't survive 
without brotherhood. Standing alone isn't strength, it's weakness. Let me repeat that. Standing alone isn't strength, it's weakness. Independence isn't maturity, it's insecurity. And so my heart looks for brothers, strong men who aren't afraid to show weakness, godly men who aren't afraid to disclose sin, skilled men who aren't afraid to fail, serious men who aren't afraid to laugh, brave men who aren't afraid to face danger, passionate men who aren't afraid to look stupid, confident men who aren't afraid of other men, humble men who aren't afraid to grow. I know they're out there. I know they just want what I want, community. We need each other. Not in some theoretical idea. Not in some theological way. But in a practical, everyday, I can actually live out my faith when I'm walking with people next to me. You may think you're strong enough. You may think you have it together. I'll be the first to say I don't. And in my faith journey, it is filled with a lot of these. And every time that I'm alone, it's filled with more of these than these. But every time I'm with others, that's what the incarnation is about, right? It's him with us. It's us with others. The spirit in us is what really makes it happen. So I kind of asked that trick question can't have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. And I would say, absolutely. Because it's a package deal. So this week, as you meet in group, let me encourage you to ask a couple questions. One, are you devoted? Don't talk about whether the church organization is or all the small group is, but are you devoted to the things present in Acts 2? And then talk about the church. You. Talk about what it means to actually be a part of the body of Christ. Because if you are a follower of Jesus, you're in. And it requires investment. It requires you to be committed. And it requires us to walk together. Let's pray.